I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's a real privilege to have my friend Whit Ayers, who's one of the most respected Republican pollsters in the business, talk about his book, 2016 and Beyond, How Republicans Can Elect a President in the New America. The book was published in 2015, but the reason I wanted to have Whit on the podcast is to talk about particularly issues around polling, public opinion, foreign policy, national security, how it's driven both the 2016 election, the 2018 election, as well as what implications foreign policy and national security have for the 2020 election. But I also just wanted to have him on because he's a really interesting guy and a really smart guy. Whit, thanks for being here. Dan, so glad to be with you. Looking forward to it. So I want to talk about national security, trade, diplomacy, You had some really interesting language in your chapter about national security and and foreign policy. You said that using public opinion isn't necessarily a good guide for specific policies, but you make a really interesting point, and we don't think about it here, but you said experts, people like yours truly, need to be aware of some of the, the, you have like riverbeds, which we should describe, to think about putting forward ideas and then building a public opinion coalition. Now, I would argue I'm in the persuasion and influence business. We kind of don't use that term, but I think I'm in the persuasion. I'm in the analysis smart person business, but I'm really in the persuasion and influence business. And I think you touch on it in this chapter. So talk about what is this riverbeds and talk about how do the American people think about foreign policy and national security when they make voting decisions? The riverbed analogy goes way back more than half a century to the eminent political scientist V.O. Key. Oh, yes. He argued that public opinion is like the banks of a river, that it determines the range of acceptable policy alternatives. On some issues, the stream bed is very narrow. Think abortion policy on Manhattan Island, for example. <laughs> or, or South Carolina. Or South Carolina at the other extreme. There's not a lot of latitude no. for public officials to get outside public opinion on those issues. But on most issues, and especially foreign policy issues, the stream bed is very broad. Most people don't have strong views about American policy toward Bosnia or El Salvador. No. (laughs) Because it's not directly affecting their lives. They just don't care that much or don't pay that much attention to it because they got more important things to think about. So in those areas where the stream bed is very broad, elites and knowledgeable experts tend to drive public policy in those areas. Every now and then, when there is a major shock event like 9-11 or a major war, then you'll see foreign policy events affect election outcomes. But it happens relatively rarely. It did happen in 2004 where the country was rallying around George W. Bush. It certainly happened in 2006 when the country had soured on the Iraq War. But other yeah, than... So Democrats won in 2006, exactly. partially as a punishment for the Iraq exactly. War. Exactly, exactly. But it is much more common for foreign policy and national security issues to not drive the election outcomes. But we need to keep in mind that there are examples where they have. I want to also add, Can I? let me ask you about trade. How does trade play in American voting? Trade is one of those issues where an effective proponent can bring people along to the side that they are trying to persuade people toward. 
for a long time, Republicans were very much pro-trade. Why? Because their leaders would make impassioned arguments that it was good for America to have good trading relations with our partners. And 95% of the world's customers are outside of our borders. Exactly. Just common sense arguments like that persuade people. But now, since Donald Trump has been in office, public opinion among Republicans has switched against trade because Donald Trump has persuaded people that maybe these deals aren't that good for us. So people are fairly flexible in their attitudes about trade, depending upon who is persuading them and in what direction. Did trade have a role in Donald Trump's election? Oh, without question. Without question. I did some focus groups in Pittsburgh after the election with blue-collar voters. And it was very revealing. They said, you know what, we, we get the joke about Donald Trump. We realize he's probably not the nicest man to be around, that he would be a bear to work for. But we look around our community and all our manufacturing jobs have been shipped overseas. We've got an opioid crisis that is ripping our communities and our families apart. And our choice was between a woman who called us deplorable and a man who said he'd help us. What the hell did you expect us to do? So there is no question in my mind that the global economy and particularly the loss of manufacturing jobs in key parts of this country were central to Donald Trump's victory. In 2020, will neither the Republican candidate, let's assume will be, Trump will be the nominee in 2020. I think that's probably a likely degree yes, that he'll likely be the nominee. Okay. Let's say Donald Trump's the nominee in 2020. In both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, neither are going to argue for free trade. I think that's a safe bet. That's, that's for the first time in probably 50 or 60 years? I think that's a safe bet. Okay. So I think that, okay, let me move to China as an issue. How does China play in terms of the American electorate? How I mean, You have some interesting polling here about, or some, some, you look at some polling here that talks about the American people would like the United States to remain the preeminent military power in yes. the world. Remain, public wants the U.S. to remain the sole military power in the world. This is from... This is a couple of years ago, but I'm assuming these numbers probably still hold up of sort of strong majorities. Then you had some polling here that says the public views the U.S. still as the leading military power. Is that still the case? I don't know. I need to go back and the Pew see, research. Yeah, see if Pew has updated that. Survey. And then the other is China as a top economic power. Sometime since 2009, almost a majority of Americans think China is the top economic yeah, power. Now, I exactly. I want to believe that over time that that may I think that's more of a perception than a reality. Yeah. And I think, but I think that's that's a very interesting perception. Yes. How? I would argue that in the last two and a half years, and I think this is a function of Donald Trump, and I think regardless of who the next president is, there has been a sea change shift about how Washington and American elites look at China. Is that bleeding into how the American electorate is thinking about China? Oh, yeah. There's great apprehensiveness about China, great worry that they are this economic powerhouse that is going to overwhelm us and overwhelm us in part by stealing our intellectual property. Because there's some, there's actually, there's some truth to that. Of course, right? Of course there is. And and so there's great apprehensiveness about China. Uh, We like their markets, particularly for our agricultural products. But there's a lot of concern that we have got to get on a fairer footing with them and particularly stop them from stealing all of our secrets. So so it's fair to say that's a bipartisan? Yes, 
So I, I think you agree. So there's been a shift, and I think it's a permanent shift if the public opinion has shifted, Republican and Democrat political leaders and the brain elites, the folks who are, dip, are diplomats, this is going to be reflected in all of their policy making. Is that true? I think that's right. That does not to say that the American public thinks trade wars are a great thing. Tell me if you agree with this. They probably don't want a full-on trade war. Sure as heck probably don't want a full-on shooting war with China. Oh, no. Heavens no. See, this, it's Lindsey Graham, who you've worked for and who I like very much, had, a, I thought, the really most interesting formulation of anybody to date, which is, I don't know what winning with China looks like. She kind of leveraging sort of Ch Donald Trump's thing about what I'm, we're going to be winning. And I think that's a very interesting short way to encapsulate. We don't want a full-on trade war with China. We don't want a full-on shooting war with China. It's not necessarily the case we want a divorce from China. But it's almost as if we would like a resetting of the rules of engagement with China. Maybe that's a way to describe it. That's a good it. way to put it. Now, that's, I spent a lot of time at a think tank, so I think deep thoughts quit. But, but no, you know, but I think that's probably, yeah. yeah. So I think, but I'm going to guess that both the Republican and the Democrat running for president, whoever the Democrat is, and are going to run on something about China. Is that fair? It better be part of any platform. Republican or Democrat. Yeah, because it's too critical a part of our future our economic future and our national security future. So you'll expect both Republican and Democrat nominees to say, we need to reset our trade relations with them. We'd like to have a, a cooperative relationship where we can. We want you to buy our stuff, but we want you to stop stealing our secrets. <laughs> That's a, and, stop, and stop stealing geography, stop stealing islands, and stop bullying your neighbors. Yep. And, oh, and by the way, treat your religious minorities a little better, please. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. Okay. So that's China. Do you think, was there, is there before and after the Iraq and Afghanistan wars in terms of how the American people think about military action? The Iraq and Afghanistan wars have made Americans more reluctant to engage overseas. That doesn't mean they've turned isolationist, but it certainly made Americans across various ideological categories more wary of military involvement and aware that things don't always turn out like you hoped they would. So I was involved, I was in the Bush administration and then I was in the Romney campaign and I went and I was looking for a candidate in 2016 and I went to Iowa for that opening. There was sort of, I sat through, I, I don't have a lot of other hobbies with. I have a few, I, only, I don't have a lot of vices, but <laughs> Mrs. Rundy will tell you. I'm very interested in politics. And so I went to Iowa for those, those speeches. And you know what I'm talking about. They, right. were sort of the, sure. they were sort of the opening gun. It was like January of 2015. Right. I sat through about eight hours of speeches. I don't follow sports. I don't have any other hobbies. And Donald Trump got up and he said several things that were shocking me. It's a longer conversation. But the thing I want to emphasize here is he got up and it was the first time a Republican candidate said the Iraq war was a disaster and people applauded. This was a very Republican audience. And that was a taboo in 2015, that was taboo. Did he partially win on, I want to call it isolationism, because that's not really what he, he's saying, but could you talk a little bit about how this issue of sort of his posture towards foreign interventions or whatever you want to call it, adventurism, how did that play into the American electorate's thinking in 2016? Oh, he tapped into the reluctance we talked about yeah. about foreign engagement. Now, keep in mind, there's been a streak of isolationism in American public policy as long as there's been an American. So it's not that new. There was the isolationists were uh, ascendant during the 1930s. Yeah, I have this poll. You have this really interesting 
figure that I think speaks to this. This is sort of the the proxy for that. Right. It kind of goes up and down over time. Right, exactly. I'd be curious, in 2013, it was 16% would, in essence, sort of be sort of like, I'm guessing it's a little higher now. I think so, although I haven't Yeah, we haven't yeah, looked at it, but okay. So if there were some sort of a military intervention in Iran or Venezuela or some kind of a military clash with China or North Korea, what does that do? How does that change the electoral calculus? I, I don't wish it. I hope it doesn't happen. But what is that? I would assume there's a part of the, the Trump base that's not looking for more military action no. anywhere. No, but a lot of it depends upon what the rationale is. There's always been a rally around the flag tendency in American public opinion once we get engaged in a foreign conflict. But it would depend upon the rationale and the length of time and the cost. One of the things that made me really happy when I saw this, in which I read in this chapter, was two-thirds say greater U.S. involvement in global economy is a good thing. This is from 20, late 2013, but I suspect it's probably still about right. I'm, I'm guessing yeah. you, you'd say... So we don't, most Americans do not want to fall back on Fortress America. Most Americans want to trade with the rest of the world. Most Americans want the United States to be a preeminent military and global power. We just probably don't want to be suckers or we don't want to be yeah. stuck in quagmires. Exactly. Or we'd like to win. Yep. So, yes to all of the above. All, yes to all of you. Okay, so let me just read some of your do's and don'ts on national security, which I think is really interesting. Do argue for a responsible leadership role for America in world affairs. Do argue that privacy is important, but security is more so. This was the balance. We didn't talk about this, but you talked about uh, surveillance. And Do argue for foreign affairs priorities in terms directly linked to domestic concerns. I think this is a critical yes. issue. And then do anticipate that events can drive rapid changes in public opinion on national security and foreign affairs. This is a little bit about your riverbed discussion That's earlier. That's right, and 9-11. And let me uh, that your do nots are very interesting. Do not argue for American withdrawal from world affairs. Most Americans, and certainly most members of the center-right coalition, are night isolationists. Let me come to this on center-right. You argue in this book that America is still kind of a center-right country, or at least is that is that my, yes, am I that's mischaracterizing? Correct. That's correct. Is it still the case that America is a center-right country today in 2019? It is more of a, an arguable point. I still think I can make the case. I hope it's a center-right country. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, put I, my cards on the table. I, I still think uh, you can make the case that Americans want plenty of room for a responsible free enterprise system that has created enormous opportunities around the world and now is transforming Asian countries yeah, and, and Africa. Yeah, there's still a very strong market for individual liberty, for strong families, for a healthy national defense. So the kinds of things that Republicans have run on for years, I think, are still dominant in America. We're going to test that proposition on the left wing of the Democratic Party, particularly among millennials in the upcoming presidential race. There are some people saying things and getting votes in the current environment that would never have happened 15 or 20 years ago. The idea that a candidate who celebrated his honeymoon in the Union of Soviet Socialist it's, Republics it's and is a has always been a socialist, not a Democrat in Bernie Sanders, is doing as well as he is, is something that I don't believe would have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. I want to come back to that in a minute. I, I, the other do not, which I loved or made me stop and think because I pay my mortgage on this stuff, 
do not make the case for American involvement in the world from a moral imperative to help less fortunate countries. You're killing me, wit, but it, I get it. That is a noble goal for the many imaginations where Americans have done enormous good around the world for decades. But given the myriad problems facing America here at home, making the case for American foreign affairs initiatives in moral or humanitarian terms gains little traction in public opinion. I agree with you. I'm I don't didn't particularly enjoy it writing give you that. Any, I know it doesn't give you any joy writing that. I, I, I believe that. And I mean, you, that's after thousands of conversations right, and right. focus groups, look, sifting through mountains of data. Those are your warnings to politicians and to political leaders. That's right. You can make the argument for foreign aid and the PEPFAR program very much from the perspective of what is good for America. We don't want failed states. We don't want the Chinese to ha- turn these countries into full-on vassal states of China. Dan, we don't want terrorism taking root in, in more places right. around the globe. Right. So if you look at the last four national security strategies, fragile and failed and failing states or governed, ungoverned spaces, all these fancy wonky terms, basically like happy places for terrorists to grow is like a national security problem. Of course So it having is. sickness, having weakness, having chaos, that's where all this bad stuff grows. Having America with sky-high favorable ratings in third world countries is good for that's America. That's good for us. It's good, good for us. us. It's good for and national security. It's good for national security, helping these states get to the point yeah. where they can buy our stuff. Yeah, buy our because stuff. Because their economy is thriving. That's good for us. I have a story about that. I have a story. So if Venezuela goes the right way, and I hope I hope Maduro goes and Guaido comes in. I hope it happens peacefully. There's going to have to be some foreign aid investment to help repair and fix Venezuela. And so many people look at Panama. So 30 years ago, Panama was a wreck after H.W. Bush, you know, got rid of Manuel Noriega. We had to probably put in about 500 or 600 million bucks to rebuild Panama. Since then, we have free trade agreement with Panama. They've bought something like fifty billion dollars of stuff mm-hmm. from us. Yep. So that's a pretty. That's a pretty. That's a trade. I'll go with that. Yep. That's a good deal. So if we'd made the argument, now we made. We probably. We did not probably make the argument in moral terms or humanitarian. Now I think he was a thug and involved with you know all sorts of bad stuff and Marianne Noriega. But yeah, we want countries to be rich enough to buy our stuff. Sure, I'm not. Arguing that moral concerns or humanitarian concerns are unimportant, not they are, in the least. Not, yes. It's, but it's a matter of how you make a political argument that most Americans can say, that makes sense to me. When the opponent says, we have enough problems here at home, we need to solve our problems here at home before trying to solve problems overseas. So have you read Selena Zito's book, The Great Revolt? Have you seen this book? I've seen it. Well, clear your calendar. It's pretty interesting. It's, it goes oh, yeah, back yeah. To your... You talk about the one with uh, Brad Todd. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you read this yeah, book? Yes, I have. I thought, I thought it was pretty good. Yes. And it reflects what you were saying earlier about the polling. And so I'm, I'm coming to that because I want to come to the 2020 cycle. So first of all, do you think Donald Trump is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party? If he wants to be. Okay. And he likely wants to be. I'm yeah. guessing he wants to be. Okay. So Bill Weld, Larry Hogan, John Kasich. The history of intra-party challenges to incumbent presidents is pretty clear. If a president really wants the nomination of his own party, he's going to get it. The danger in intra-party challenges is not that you deny the president the nomination, but that you weaken that president 
for re-election. That's what happened when Ronald Reagan challenged Gerald Ford in 1976, when Ted Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter in 1980, and when Pat Buchanan challenged George H.W. Bush in 1992. All three presidents won renomination. All three presidents lost the subsequent general election. So I think ultimately, as we're now at May 23rd, and if I was thinking, if you and I are both friends with Ed Gillespie, and so Ed Gillespie told me several years ago, I said, what's it cost to run in the first four states in the primary and caucuses in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada? And his off-the-cuff answer was about $10 million a state. Mm-hmm. So if I'm Larry Hogan or I'm John Kasich, i got to find 20 to $40 million bucks. None of these people are rich enough to do this themselves. Bill Weld certainly is not rich enough to do this themselves. They'd have to start writing checks now and have people on the ground June, July, or August, like paid staff right now. You'd have to do the full Grassley in all 99 counties in Iowa. You'd have to be hitting this very, very hard, and you'd have to have money. Yep. And I don't believe there's $40 million worth of small donors in the Republican Party to bankroll a challenge to Donald Trump. I don't believe it. And then, Or you'd have to get folks who are willing to bundle in 500000 or $2,500 chunks for $20 million. That's a lot of bundling, and that's a lot of bundlers. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work. And, and you have to ask those kinds of people to put themselves out there to their networks and spend hours and hours and hours on a fool's errand. So I don't know where these people are going to get the money. They're so. Not. So I think he gets the nomination. What happens on the, in your mind? What, what game out? Any, it's anybody's guess. What happens on the Democratic side? Depends upon whether the Democrats want to win or want to make a statement. And sometimes you never know. And sometimes you never know. There are there's polling that suggests that the desire to win is higher than it has been in the past. But my experience is that voters are not that calculating. They tend to go with the person that they happen to like or the person they agree with most. They're not sitting around running numbers on polls saying this candidate has a better shot to win. That said, I do think part of the support for Joe Biden, where you saw this double-digit jump in his support after his announcement, is because people think he has the best chance to win. We'll see if that lasts through the rough and tumble of a primary season. So you've got five, the first debates are in June in the Democratic primary. There's going to be at least three or four or five or six of them between now. I think February 2 is Iowa. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. Yep. That's more than six months. It's eight months. That's a long, long time in politics. Six months ago, we were talking about Beto O'Rourke, and I think we would now today in May 23rd say Beto O'Rourke is fading, right? And there's all sorts of other... As my Texas friends say, all hat, no cap. <laughs> Could you imagine, Sarah, where, where Bernie Sanders is the nominee? Yes. I think so, too. Yes, I can imagine a scenario. I don't think it's likely, but I can imagine a scenario. He's got about 30, 20, 20 to 25% support, and in a... Plurality. Long series of primaries where you're getting proportional representation, it's not, not winner, winner take, all. take all. The Republicans have winner take yeah. all. The Democrats are proportional. He's got the money, the people, the organization, the staying power, exactly. and the votes. Exactly. So he can stay in it a long time. If you're a Democrat who's given to worry, you can imagine a scenario where he goes into the convention with less than a majority of the delegates, but with the largest number of delegates. He does not get the nomination on the first ballot where the superdelegates cannot vote. The superdelegates come in on a subsequent ballot and give the nomination to somebody other than Bernie. 
then you can watch the Democratic Party come across like apart 1968, at the seams, right? 1968 kind of scenario. But I think the likelihood is that he will top out at 25 to 30 percent. And so if another candidate like a Joe Biden can continue to get more than that, that candidate's likely to get the nomination. So uh, Howard Schultz, is he going to run? I don't know. Yeah. He, Donald Trump got 46% of the vote in 2016. His job approval has never been higher than 46% of the vote, in part because he spent his entire presidency inflaming and reinforcing the people who voted for him by going after the people who didn't. So the likelihood that he gets more than the 46% of the vote in 2020, it's not impossible, but it's fairly low. What that means for the Democrats is that if they nominate somebody who can consolidate that majority of Americans who are not supportive of Donald Trump, then he's very likely to win. But what Donald Trump needs is somebody to take 10 percentage points off the table. So that rather than 100% being divided between the two major candidates, you have, say, 90% divided between the two major candidates. With 90% between the two major candidates, 45 46% is a winning hand. Keep in mind, we have had two presidents elected during your and my lifetime with 43% of the vote. Uh, Bill Clinton in 1992. And Richard Nixon in 1968. I'd forgotten. Of course. It was a simpler time. It was a simpler. So, okay, so Wit, so in your mind, if you were a betting man today, May 23rd, 2019, and maybe you're not a betting man, is this advantage Democrats? It depends on who they nominate. If they nominate Bernie Sanders, it's advantage Trump. If they nominate Joe Biden or maybe yeah, some of the yeah, others, it, it could Biden, be advantage Democrats. A, a Biden-Kamala-Harris ticket is going to be hard to beat. It, but it all depends on what the Democrats do. So foreign policy how, how high on the agenda is it going to be barring a, a global crisis going into 2020? Foreign policy as it relates to trade and China China could be a very significant issue depending upon how the candidates run. National security will always be in the back of people's minds as long as terrorism is relatively quiescent, but it can always be pushed to back. the front of people's ISIS, minds. ISIS was top of mind exactly. in the 2014 Exactly. Midterms. So it depends upon world events. So I love this book. Thank you. So given Trump, do you have to rewrite this book? No. No. Okay. I'm, You're I'm, sticking with I'm it. I'm absolutely convinced that the fundamental the argument of that thesis, book that Republicans are going to have to adapt to a very different kind of America if they want to elect a president in the long run is still as true as it was when I wrote those words. Okay, the book is 2016 and Beyond, How Republicans Can Elect a President in the New America by my friend Whit Ayers. Thanks, Whit. Thank you so much, Dan. Appreciate being here.